the very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. We all have our go-tos, right? The doctor you trust, the dentist you rely on, the restaurant you love. What makes them your go-to? It's trust, isn't it? Hi, this is Dan from Bellingham Automotive, your go-to for auto repairs in Whatcom County since 1991. Whether you're using your car for ride-sharing, delivery services, mobile office, maybe just a taxi for your kids and their friends, or it's just personal transportation, we're here to keep you on the road. We're proud to have a team of technicians and service advisors who have been with us for years. They can help you find that strange noise or figure out what that warning light is trying to tell you. They can perform regular maintenance to keep your car up to date and your new car warranty intact. We know you're busy, so we also offer a local shuttle service and an after-hour drop-off and pickup options to help take the hassle out of your auto repair. So if you don't have a trusted go-to for your vehicles, please give us a call at 360-676-5200 or visit bellinghamautomotive.com to schedule an appointment. New Year's Eve party for a cause. Support the Ferndale Food Bank and enjoy a night of celebration at the Ferndale Event Center. Your $75 ticket or $120 for couples includes mouth-watering appetizers, live music by Sunset Superman, and a champagne toast at midnight, and a no-host bar, too. An unforgettable evening of music, laughter, and the warmth of giving back with proceeds benefiting the Ferndale Food Bank. Doors open at 7. Every ticket makes a difference. Find ticket link and details on the Ferndale Food Bank Facebook page. We don't have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city, but sometimes things happen to snarl everything up. Depend on KGMI to keep you cruising to your destination with KGMI traffic alerts. We'll tell you where the trouble spots are, and if you see problems on the road, give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. Nobody's talking about how are we going to help farm workers make more money? That's the issue right now. Farm workers are making less money than they used to. And why is it? It's because of a Washington state law that was, well, at least by the the powers that be that don't understand farming, um, they thought they were going to help farm workers make more. It didn't turn out that way. And in fact, it's causing them to make less. As we predicted, um, we here on this program, we at Save Family Farming uh, and people across the farming uh, community in Washington State and other experts as well. Why? Uh, Because farming is on a whole pretty tapped out as far as as labor costs. So farms, to be able to stay out of the red, and by the way, if you want to keep growing food, you can't be in the red year after year after year after year. Honestly, farms are are often in the red one year and in the black the next year. That's how farming goes. We talk about that on the program. But you can't do that, you know, being in the red, being in debt, you know, not making a profit for too many years and you're done. And so farms are having to protect 
their bottom line is be like, hey, we need to survive here. We have to limit the number of hours that folks work. The upshot is that workers are able to make less money under this uh, dropping uh, overtime threshold that's being phased in. It goes to 40 hours a week starting January 1st. This is The Farming Show. Good morning to you. I'm Dylan Honkoop. We've talked a lot about this issue here on the program. I'm with Save Family Farming, and joining me uh, this morning is... Pam Lewison with the Washington Policy Center um, with their initiative on agriculture. She's a frequent guest here on the show. And most recently, I mean, I I think I've talked here on the program in recent weeks about what's happened, you know, what happened this fall with uh, farm worker gatherings all all over the state, several gatherings that uh, brought out nearly a thousand farm workers wanting to get more information on this and wanting to have the opportunity to voice publicly voice their frustration and do something, anything to be heard in Olympia. So those folks start to recognize the decisions they're making aren't helping, but are hurting the farm workers here in our state. Pam, um, you wrote a blog about a, a meeting that just happened, though, and this is the most recent thing, uh, a meeting on the 30th of November before the Washington State Senate Ag uh, Committee, uh, state senators having a work session, uh, and one of the two big topics of the session, work session, was, was this overtime issue, and we heard from different groups of folks And, you know, personally, just for starters, I was disappointed that there wasn't more conversation from anyone about the real problem as I see it here, which is what are we going to do to help the people that this whole concept, this whole issue in the first place was supposed to be about helping? They say it's hurting them. And while, you know, advocates, activists, people who... Um, honestly game the political system to their, uh, you know, very niche, uh, <laughs> ultra-progressive uh, motives, as we've talked about, the, the labor activists in this state, um, they will say, well, you know, um, this is just the, the narrative of the farmers, it's not true. But once you see nearly a thousand farm workers come out because of the growing frustration on this, you know it's a real thing. People are legitimately frustrated. Talk about what was said, though. I mean, in not talking about actually coming up with a, a solution that helps those folks, there was some pushback from the folks that are supposed to care and be advocating for the farm worker community. They they said it's all about some deal that was made a couple of years ago. Well, so, you know, I thought that the Senate work session was interesting in its approach to talking about the phase in of overtime and specifically um, this, this, we had a deal and, and now farmers are trying to break that deal. Um, and what they're alluding to is when uh, the overtime legislation was first introduced, there were, uh, of course, several conversations and a lot of negotiation, um, as with any piece of legislation that occurs um, behind the scenes. You know, there's there's always conversation between legislators um, from both sides of the aisle that occurs um, not on the floor and not um, not in committee. There's still a lot of things going on and a lot of discussion going on. And in that conversation, um, there was another version of the bill that went through 
um, this sort of negotiation process that had in it this seasonal flexibility approach. But we were getting to the end of session. And, and, and seasonal flexibility is probably the the most obvious potential solution to give both farmers and farm workers some relief on this this issue. Yes. And uh, we were getting to the end of session. Things were really tight and they couldn't get kind of buy in from everyone. And they finally did. And then Senator Kaiser at the last minute said, I don't want it in the bill. Seasonal seasonal flexibility, you mean? Yeah, Yeah. I don't want seasonal flexibility in the bill. We'll talk about it after we get the bill passed. Mm. We'll come back and we will talk about seasonal flexibility as its own piece after we get this bill passed. So so did some of the, the other folks, particularly the labor activists... Not get the memo on on that because now they're saying by bringing this up and doing exactly what you talked about then, as you're saying, to revisit this issue and hash it out later. By doing that, they say the initial deal is being reneged by the the farming community. Oh, um, I'm certainly got the memo because uh, they or their representatives were present for those negotiations. So At least what's the give? What's How related. can they spin it now that this is going back on the deal when this is exactly what Senator Kaiser said she wanted to have happen? And, and for folks who don't know Senator Kaiser, she has a long background in the, the labor movement and is very sympathetic to these activists and folks, some folks who I believe are extremists on this issue. So this is what she wanted really, I mean, advocating for their side of things. I think that, <clears throat> I mean, I I don't know. I wasn't sitting at the table, but I suspect that what happened is um, that that back and forth ultimately became a last minute, we're going to get what we want. And then once we have you over a barrel, we'll decide whether or not we're going to come back and actually have this conversation or not. But the agreement was in place that they would come back to the table and have a conversation about seasonal flexibility in some form, specifically because ag interests were aware that the people who were going to be hurt most by this piece of legislation and the phase-in of overtime were going to be farm workers. Back to what I was saying in the beginning, because that turned out to be true. And and, uh, the most pain hasn't been felt yet even. This year, the threshold was 48 hours um, with a three-year phase-in that was approved as part of that deal. Um, Next year, this coming year, 2024, um, will be that much more painful for folks who are just trying to get as many hours as they can, get as much, uh, make as much money as they can when the work is available during harvest times or other busy seasons on the farm. That's the whole point of, you know, farm work, farming as a whole, being very seasonal, being tied to the ebb and flow of Mother Nature and the cycles of the year um, and of plants. Uh, there's busy times and slow times. So you make as much money as you can. You make hay when the sun shines um, and you probably are slower in other times of year trying to fit a, a system that was designed for factory work onto that, that way of life. It just isn't fitting. 
but they say that's that that's what they need to do, and they don't seem to be discussing any sort of relief for the very people who say this is causing them harm. Mm-hmm. Where 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 does that become part of the discussion? Instead, the advocates are are talking about heady issues of you know it, basically conceptual issues, abstract ideas of is overtime a good thing or not? Is it about equality and dignity and equity and systemic racism and all of these ideas? And uh, you know, I don't necessarily agree with all of their arguments there, but I'd say throw all of that out and first, what are we going to do to help people? And and nobody was talking about that. Well, I think they, what's really difficult in those kinds of arguments is, generally speaking, if you're in the ag community, you are first and foremost a boots-on-the-ground individual. So you want to deal with things that are tangible, and you want to deal with things that you are holding in your hand every day. And if you're a, you know, if you're a farm worker, what you're holding in your hand now is a check that keeps getting smaller. And that doesn't mean that you are not working hard or that you're not appreciated. It means that both you and your employer understand that there is an economics to farming. And in the current economic situation that we're in, farmers are having to make hard choices and they're having to have discussions with their farm workers saying, I genuinely appreciate that you show up to work every single day and that you put in every hour that you put in. However, I cannot pay you overtime because I cannot afford it. That's where and they're being forced to have those conversations. Well, but these these labor activists and you know the two people that were representing that perspective in the, the, the activist perspective in this meeting that we're talking about. And by the way, we're talking with Pam Lewison right now on the Farm Show, Farming Show. Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. Um, Pam Lewison with Washington Policy Center talking about uh, overtime in the world of farming uh, and what it's actually meant for farm workers. As we have discussed numerous times here on the program, this latest uh, development, this work session, um, the, the folks representing that side in there were Andrea Schmidt with Columbia Legal Services, uh, an extreme um, progressive voice that is you know f- from a group that that is all about very far left ideals and you know supporting the labor movement um to an extreme end and then even more extreme it, it was Edgar Franks uh, the political director i think he's called now with Familias Unidas por la Justicia a group that that calls themselves a union has a, a one single union contract down at uh, Sakumer Brothers Farms in Skagit County after that whole debacle and controversy down there um, Edgar Franks, who, as we pointed out, I mean, it's the, the number of falsehoods that that man has spoken over the years are mind-boggling. They make your head spin if you start looking at all of the things that he's either uh, said that are completely false or at least twisted the truth enough to make it unrecognizable uh, to reality. They're saying, well, you know, they were trying to at least suggest that this wasn't true. Uh, What you were just saying, Pam, that, that farmers are having to make that hard choice to limit folks' hours um, to 
survive financially and, and continue growing food. He's saying, and again, he didn't say it directly because he doesn't have any numbers to prove it. We know that, but he claimed, and again, twisting using the wrong, well, in his I mind the right word um, to suggest that farms are pulling in, as he said, record profits. Um, and we can talk about that in a minute, but I, I, it's, I mean, it, it's not profits maybe that he's talking about, or maybe he's deliberately using the word profit incorrectly here. Listen to this. I mean, for those in the farming community, this is laughable. What Edgar Franks is saying, it's, it's so far from the truth. Take a listen to this clip from that, that meeting. This is Edgar Franks with Familias Unidas por la Justicia talking about this overtime issue and the, the deal that was made. You know, we weren't looking to destroy the farm industry. Um, as I understand it, they've been making record profits since overtime um, became law in 2021. Um, you know, I think there's clippings and articles that everybody can look at where um, where um, industry uh, leaders have been saying, you know, year after year, the record profits that are coming in. Record profits. That doesn't jive with reality at all, Pam. What, what's going on there? How can he make that claim? Well, so I think what uh, he's alluding to is um, the value of our crop production. There was a report that was issued earlier this year about the value of our crop production in 2022. Value meaning did, gross, gross right, revenue. Gross value. Yeah. And we did have a record breaking year in 2022 for the first time. You mean time, we as, as the farming community as a whole in Washington right, state. Yeah. Right. The farming community as a whole broke um, the gross revenue record for our crop production value. However, in 2022, we also saw extraordinary increases in cost of production. So when you start looking at what that cost of production did to that actual on-farm income, there was no difference. If anything, it may have actually put us back a little bit. And that's what we're hearing from folks on the ground. Anecdotally, you're talking about the overall, the actual numbers, the data, and you talk with yep. farmers and, and more and more they're saying, you know, it keeps getting tighter and tighter. We're not sure how much longer we can keep doing this. And if anything, the only people that are sort of surviving okay now are the, the biggest players in all this, which is also, I'm sure what Edgar Franks would say he doesn't want. And those are the types of operations he loves to uh, demonize. But there, you know, a, a large corporation is about the only, um, you know, structure right now that can weather some of these, these financial storms that, that farming and people growing food in Washington state can, are, are, are experiencing. It, it, but to uh, back to his quote, Edgar Franks using the term profits incorrectly because he's talking about overall revenue. And, and we have this all the time with farming. People say, oh, somebody must be a millionaire, you know. Oh, look, their farm brought in uh, $7 million last year. But guess what? Their costs were six hundred and <laughs> or, or 6.99, you know, uh, they, they, they maybe had 
had $70,000 of profit and they're happy because, hey, that covers what they need for their whole family and that's it. And they're just hanging in there. Maybe it was less because, you know, some years you don't make any money at all. You have to go back to the banker. Um, you know how it goes, Pam. I've experienced it. This was my life growing up. Some years it's like we just hope we can make it to next year because if we do this two or three years in a row, um, dad's going to have to sell a farm. We're going to have to move into town and do something different. Well, and I think the best way to really think about agriculture is not in terms of what those gross numbers look like. It's really about what's your profit margin. Mm-hmm. And the best way for me to describe it is in agriculture, more than 60% of farms in agriculture have a profit margin of 10%. Now, anybody who runs a business will know what that means. You have 10% of your income to work with. That's it. You have 10% to cover all of your operating costs, labor, uh, regulations, pesticides, all of your inputs have to be covered by 10% of what your gross revenue versus, you know, with all of your expenses removed. What you have left is 10%. And that's still to cover, yeah, to to cover those costs at leaving, you know, what are you actually making in, you know, clear and away profit? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Peanuts. And and then uh, to have a comparison for what that looks like with some of the other top industries in Washington, because agriculture is number two, Mm -hmm. some of the other top industries in, in the state uh, in software and um, computer programming, profits range anywhere from 60 to 70%. That's yeah. your profit margin. If you are even, let's say, let's look at something that's uh, sort of more trades related, something more uh, closely aligned with ag in terms of people working, yep. uh, and that's building. Yep. The building industry still has a profit margin running around 20 to 30 percent two to three times as much as farming a basic these folks need a lesson in basic economics when they throw around terms like that claiming that farming is is seeing record record profits and why don't they share that with their workers when the reality is you look at the costs uh, for a lot of farming in washington state right now uh labor intensive crops in particular which is a lot of what we grow here um, labor is one of, if not the biggest cost, uh, that has to be covered by that slice of the pie. And how can you have that and claim that, that you know, the quote unquote wealth isn't being shared? Uh, it, it's, it, it defies logic, uh, what they're saying and what Edgar Franks was claiming in terms of record profits. Pam Lewison with Washington Policy Center. Uh, I just looked at the clock. We're out of time. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program this morning. And folks, go to WashingtonPolicy.org to check out Pam uh, Pam's work and her recent blogs, including the one that we were talking about today. It does a much better job of explaining it than, than I tried to, and we were able to in the amount of time we had this morning. So, so thanks so much, Pam. Thanks for having me. 
The Lummy Bay Market at Exit 260 is where you'll find more in the store. You'll find more in the store because there's so much store. Almost 10,000 square feet. The Lummy Bay Market is where you'll find everything you need for on and off the road. You'll find the best value on gas and diesel, along with way more than you would expect out of a convenience store. There's a liquor department featuring a great selection of your favorite competitively priced spirits, wines, and mixers. And of course, you'll want to check out the huge selection of ice-cold beer in their massive beer cave. Want to grab a quick bite for breakfast or lunch? Don't feel like cooking dinner? At the Lummy Bay Market, you'll find a great hot deli counter, including our brand new fried chicken, chicken tenders, and chicken wings with all the fixins. Make the Lummy Bay Market your first or last stop of the day for fuel, food, and more. The Lummy Bay Market, just off I-5 at exit 260 on Rural Avenue. Open 24 hours, 7 days a week. Lummy Bay Market, where, where there's, there's more in the store. store. This week with PNW Perks, get authentic Indian cuisine or a fresh slice of pizza with Tandoori Bites and all-time pizza. Tandoori Bites is now in Bellingham and Linden. You'll be amazed at the unique menu of one-of-a-kind foods that take your taste buds on a journey overseas. Enjoy a bountiful menu featuring tender butter chicken and succulent baked tandoori meats, plus plenty of vegetarian and halal options. For a special dining experience, eat family-style, complete with authentic Indian-style seating. The new Tandoori Bites Linden location also features a sports bar with local craft beers, Indian beer, wine, and a full cocktail menu. Tandoori Bites Linden is also home to all-time pizza. 21 different flavorful pizzas to choose from with a tasty variety of fresh toppings. Dine in or take out. Thursday with PNW Perks, you can get a $50 gift certificate for just $25 to Tandoori Bites in Bellingham. All-time pizza and Tandoori Bites in Linden. PNW Perks certificates are good for both locations. Get your deal Thursday at 8 a.m. only at pnwperks.com. Sure, there are many contractors who promise quality construction, but few with 45 years of experience that you can trust. Good news? There's Honkoop Gravel. They have professionals with experience in site prep, drainage systems, house foundations, and custom projects all under one roof. And with 45 years of service experience, they do it right the first time. Honkoop Gravel, the full-service civil contractors you can trust. Honkoop Gravel in Linden, or visit honkoop.com for information. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. What is the future of farming in Washington State? Well, you know me. I mean, that's something I think about all day, every day. Uh, What's the future, though, of of communities across Washington State? People trying to heat their homes. You know, business trying to get stuff done here in Washington State. What's the future of our stream? All of this um, could be, this future could be very impacted by some things that have really come to the fore in the last few weeks relating to dams and what are the future uh, what's the future of the dams particularly on the lower 
Snake River um, that, as we've talked about so many times in the show, will impact the future of so many things, including farming here in Washington State. Good morning to you. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI uh, with the Farming Show, and um, some secret negotiations have apparently been going on, as we've reported here and has been reported so many other uh, places, um, between kind of, I want to say, one side of this damn issue, and it hasn't involved the other side, which would be farming, would be electricity customers, would be a lot of other folks um, that make up the state of Washington. So what is happening here? How is some kind of deal to possibly move towards taking these dams out? How is this happening with only a, a select few uh, involved in the conversation, and, and really, what is the big picture on this issue? Joining us this morning on the program is Karen Bud Fallon. Um, she is a senior partner at the Bud Fallon Law Offices over in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, I met her uh, a year or two ago at the Cattlemen Convention. She had great perspective on this. She served for a couple of years in the Trump administration in the Department of Interior as their deputy solicitor for wildlife and parks, so she knows a whole heck of a lot about the endangered. Species Act, which of course has a huge bearing on this issue of dams and many other things we discuss here on the program as well. Karen, welcome to the program this morning. Um, and, and we can kind of work backwards here, but let's start off with, with what's going on right now. What's the deal with these negotiations? It's between the federal government and just a, a, a in some ways a short list of, of stakeholders um, here in Washington and Oregon and Idaho? Yes, good morning, and thank you for having me on your program. So, as your listeners may know, there has been litigation regarding dams on the Snake River and Columbia since around 2012. Yeah. You've had National Wildlife Federation and numerous, not all of the Indian tribes, but a lot of the Indian tribes arguing to eliminate dams. You have farmers and ranchers and transportation folks and other members of Indian tribes litigating on the other side, on the same side as the National Marine Fisheries Service to say, no, we got to keep the dams yeah. in place. We recognize we got to protect salmon, but, but breaching dams is absolutely a bridge too far. And what's going on now is that it looks like from this draft settlement agreement, at least an initial analysis that got leaked, that the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is the federal agency that deals with anadromous fish like salmon, and some of the tribes, and I couldn't tell very clearly whether the National Wildlife and Federation was involved in that negotiation or not, Yeah, but are basically negotiating a secret deal, which doesn't recall for the breaching of dams, but is leading to the breaching of dams. Yeah, yeah. How, how scary is this as far as those of us concerned about the future, particularly of agriculture, you know, for us here in Washington State, but even more, in the, more than that across the Pacific Northwest? I think it's very frightening. For one thing, you have farmers and ranchers that have intervened in this litigation, and to exclude them from the negotiation room, I think sets horrible precedent that you can get a sweetheart deal if you're on the political side of the federal government. So I think that's one problem. Another problem is that when I read this draft settlement document, it only talks about how 
we need to provide energy for the tribes so that we can breach the dam. Hmm. It, there isn't anything about providing, I mean, the dams create hydropower. The whole purpose of the Columbia River and Snake River projects was to provide cheap hydropower to the Northwest. That's why Congress authorized those to begin with. And the Northwest was completely settled based on the fact that you could get electricity cheaply from these dams. And so now the, the Biden administration, because of their, their concerns, are saying, we're going to spend this huge amount of money doing alternative studies to be able to provide power to tribes as a precursor to taking out dams, not to the general citizens, not providing power, not considering whether wind and solar is actually as cheap or as as convenient or as reliable as hydropower. Yeah. We're just going to provide these alternate energy to these tribal entities and, I guess, good luck with everybody else. Now, there had been a study talking about a pretty insane amount of money, if I recall, uh, you know, trying to essentially pay, mitigate for the loss of the dams recently. Um, and I know that was related to, for instance, Congressman uh, Mike Simpson there in Idaho, who had said, ah, maybe we should just go ahead and, and take uh, dams out um, and figure out how to mitigate the impact of, of having done that. So they're talking about more along that same line. I mean, I feel like this has been studied to a degree and, and the, the result of those studies was, yeah, we could mitigate for it. It would cost a huge amount of money, but no, we, we don't necessarily think this is the right thing to do now. Well, the, the document that was um, confidential settlement document didn't talk about mitigation necessarily. What it talked about was we're going to pay these massive amounts of money so that tribes could like put up their own wind projects or put up their own solar projects so that we would mitigate for the loss of the electricity. But I don't hear anybody ever talking about, is this electrical power as good as what we've got? I mean, it's frustrating that the administration thinks you can just flip a switch and all of a sudden change from coal and oil and gas to wind and solar and, and it'll be exactly the same. But well, the wind it, doesn't always yeah. blow and the sun doesn't always shine, so it's not the same. <laughs> yeah, and, and we talked about this issue uh, recently here on the program with Todd Myers uh, with the Washington Policy Center, and he was pointing out at that time, I'm sure it's changed since, in, since then, but when we had him on the program, he was saying, yeah, for the past week we've had almost no wind activity, almost no wind power generation whatsoever. That's, that's the problem, and that's what people don't understand about hydroelectric power. It's not just a green source of power because it's hard mother nature to produce the power but it also is a massive battery our our reservoirs are essentially energy batteries that can fill the gaps in the power system when other things come and go when demand and supply has fluctuations but people don't think about that like you're saying when when they're talking about replacing these you know my assumption is they aren't asking that question because they already know the answer and the answer is no it's not the same thing again karen bud fallon with us right now uh, an attorney out of uh, wyoming Uh, she's been very involved with these issues for a long time including a stint within the trump administration in the the department of interior Um, wildlife and uh, the endangered species act which we know comes to bear on this 
this issue in terms of salmon, and particularly the ESA listed, the Endangered Species Act listed Chinook salmon um, that are struggling so much, um, even while many other runs are actually doing quite well, mind you, the data will show. But the, the Chinook have unique struggles. And that, and I think people should be aware, this is unique. This isn't all salmon. This is Chinook salmon. They are the endangered species. But Karen, this, that, th- this is your wheelhouse w- with your background. Talk about the significance of the dams and recovering salmon. I, I think all of this is predicated on really, in, in a lot of ways, assumptions that th- these dams will recover salmon. A- and they say even in, in these documents, the, basically the science is settled on it when the scientists that I'm hearing from are saying, no, it's, it's absolutely not settled. And there's a lot more to the picture than these dams. And in fact, you know, streams without dams are struggling similarly to streams with dams. What's your take from your background on the significance of taking out dams and, and restoring salmon in the first place? I think that that is a huge problem, not just with salmon, but with all endangered species. The, this is the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, and there's really two schools of thought on the ESA. My view, and I absolutely believe the view of the congressmen and senators who voted for that act 50 years ago, was that we were going to put species on the list and then figure out the problem and get them off. Yeah. And so that recovery was the goal. And for recovery to be the goal, that doesn't mean that you just pick the quickest, easiest thing so you can say, yeah, I'm doing something, even if it's only a 1% chance of success. And I think that's the way Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA Fisheries are looking at the act now. You've got the other school of thought by groups like Center for Biological Diversity and Wild Earth Guardians that believe the Endangered Species Act is like life support. And so we should put as many species on the list as absolutely possible. Don't worry about recovery. Just get them on life support and leave them there forever. And I absolutely do not think that that's what Congress intended. I don't think it meant to leave species on the endangered species list forever. But look at the way that Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA Fisheries treat these species. Yeah. They'll well, take an action, the simplest action, and then say, see, we're doing something when they haven't yeah. really studied it to figure out how to get the animal totally off the list. Well, I'm, and my view and folks, uh, you know, if you listen to this program, you know that, that I, I'm pretty cynical about such things, but I have yet to be proven wrong um, in terms of the real motives behind some of these things. There is so much bias that goes into it. And it's not just political bias. More insidious is the, the bottom line bias because you talk about life support these things are life support for the budgets of groups like the center for biological diversity uh, which has become a a political powerhouse they like to throw their weight around um, and they have millions upon millions of dollars you know between all the groups the nonprofit industrial complex um, I've called it many times on this program. I think I stole that from Will Honey down in Skagit County. Um, and thanks, Will, for that. Um, but between all of them, billions of dollars dedicated almost exclusively to this idea of fish habitat. And if you understand the larger fish recovery issue, habitat is one of multiple pieces to recovering fish. You know, it seems like these folks have sunk so much effort into this and they have so much of their personal 
bottom line uh, writing on it that, that why else, you know, why would they want to consider anything else being the problem? You know, to, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, and I think that's a big part of what's going on here. From your view, Karen, what's really going on with these fish and what does the science actually say? Well, I, I'm understanding I'm not a biologist, but right. from all of the reading that I have done, there are lots of problems. There's ocean conditions, there's there's migration, there's habitat, there is a lot of things that are impacting salmon. Yep. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that, that everything is fine for the salmon because yep. we see by the numbers that it's not. Yep, exactly. But unless you take a coordinated approach you're not going to get them off the list, and isn't and that's the point. Yeah. And when you talk about the industrial complex, I have to make a comment here, because several years ago I started looking at the amount of attorneys' fees that are paid to nonprofit groups to sue the federal government simply to get species on the list. Yeah. And it's astronomical, and there's no question that some of these groups, like Center for Biological Diversity, entire, I wouldn't say entire, but a significant amount of their financial existence is based on the payment of attorney's fees. When we were in the Trump administration, we tried to track that amount at Department of Interior. We could never do it. Mm -hmm. Just because it was so complex and, and so extensive. Yeah. And you've got all these different courts and everybody operating in different ways. And there's no good accounting system for how much money the federal government pays in attorney's fees to anybody. Well, and, and, and their donors pay insane. for their donors pay for their attorney's fees. The the federal government pays its attorney's fees. Many times, you know, in, in an in amongst all of these cases, there are a lot of settlements for various issues, uh, and our tax dollars often pay out those. Um, and then, you know, we've taken it a step further here at Save Family Farming and talked in the past about things like the Rose Foundation, which I, I'm guessing you're probably familiar with uh, Karen in in San Francisco where settlement dollars in these kinds of cases go to and then get recycled back in some cases as we've experienced right here in my home community that same money from the settlement that a group was involved with comes back to fund them so it's it, it is almost a, a money laundering scheme to fund um, these this again nonprofit industrial complex um, with taxpayer dollars it, it's insane and it's so much more focused on the money um, you know that in in my mind is often the motive above and beyond whatever actually if you really cared about these fish you'd want to look at all of the issues and and these groups uh, time and again um, avoid those issues they gaslight those who do want to look at those issues and here we could you know yank these dams out and still be virtually no further ahead maybe you know arguably potentially worsen things for salmon um in this lower snake river and in the the overall you know columbia um system um and where would that get us? Look at the destruction that this would cause. And in a lot of ways, that's what, I mean, we talk about studies. This has been studied numerous times, has it not? Taking out the dams, what would that do? And the answer time and again from the federal government itself was, no, it's not worth it. Well, and the problem is, is we're not even looking at the collateral impacts because you start taking out dams so that you start having less irrigation water 
for ranches and farms and crops and your we're already growing more pounds of beef and growing more crops on less acreage than ever. And the solution is not to get our food source from countries that hate us. Yeah. Which is, so, which is what uh, this and so many other things are pushing us toward here in in the U.S. and particularly in the Pacific Northwest where, you know, the cost of doing business between regulations, between uh, court risks, between so many different things um, that cost more and more money is, is becoming un, unfeasible. And, and so, uh, yeah, where, where does that – the food's going to come from somewhere, right? Yeah, and, and I don't really want mine grown in Mexico where I know that beef slaughter facilities aren't as good. I know that my, my fruits and vegetables are not as clean. Yep. My transportation costs are going to go up. I mean, Wor- Workers are paid $11, 13, $12, 13 a day, uh, you know, if people care about labor issues. Uh, why in the world would you not want to keep the food production here? The list could go on and on, and this is what we're so passionate about here at Save Family Farming. So... We just have 30 seconds left, Karen. What's going to happen next? What's your view on this, your expert opinion as, you know, in this world and particularly as an attorney of, of where this is going to go? Well, it's my understanding that the judge has got a hearing and is going to make some final determinations on the settlement agreement this month. So we'll have to see where that goes. Um, the document made it clear that Congress governs the dams, so the dams aren't going to go without the federal government, but I worry about the millions of dollars in agency money that's going to get diverted to this when it's already committed to do other projects. Yeah, that's that's a good point as well. And I just remember um, hearing your talk. I, I think it was last year at uh, the Cattlemen's Convention. T- you know, at that time, it was there was a lot of discussion about Jay Inslee and Patty Murray and you know what was happening with Congressman Simpson. And it was very focused on legislative. And you said at that time, now th- this this story is going to be about what happens in the courts. And to me, that's that much more scary because it's less transparent. Uh, it's not. <laughs> You know, it, it's not something that a lot of us are probably going to end up having a say-so uh, if these folks get what they want. Again, Karen Bud Fallon with the Bud Fallon Law Offices in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, long, long-time attorney involved in these issues as well as uh, former uh, deputy solicitor uh, for wildlife and parks in the Department of, in, of the Interior in the Trump administration. Karen, thanks for taking the time to chat with us and uh, keep us posted on this issue. There is so much riding on it. We can't afford to uh, sweep this under the rug or, or ignore it. I will do that. And thank you for shedding light on this problem.